Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 18. This is what the Word of God has to say. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the, with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an, an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So there are two things that I'm pretty confident that I know that are true about every Christian in the room today. Number one... You, if you're a Christian today, you know that you should pray. So probably don't have to spend much time on that. And then secondly, the second thing that I, I'm pretty confident that I know is true about every Christian today is that you know that you should pray. And secondly, you feel somewhat guilty that you don't pray enough. Whatever your prayer life looks like today, however much time you spend in prayer this morning, this afternoon, this past week, I suspect that most of us feel like we should have done more. Now, my hope today is not to pile on on your sense of guilt or your sense of defeat in this area. In fact, what I want to do is encourage you to connect to what I think, second only to salvation, is the absolute greatest gift that we've been given. And that is, through the blood of Jesus being made right with God, you are invited to step into the presence of the holy and living God to speak with him, to hear from him in prayer. Now, there are some people I will never be able to walk into their presence. Kings and princes and presidents and leaders. I may be able to drive by where they live, but I'm not invited into their homes. I'm not, I don't receive an audience with them. And even if someday I somehow make a way to get an audience with them, it'll be temporary, it'll be brief, it'll be perfunctory, and then out the door I go. But dear friends, if you're a believer today, you have the gift of being welcomed into the presence of God to speak, to hear talk with the God of all creation. Before the pandemic changed literally everything, and part of that, it changed our planning here at the church about events. We, before those days, we were in the, in the talks and in the planning stages of offering a marriage retreat uh, for couples in our church. As part of our discussion, we, we often articulated the truth that marriage retreats are not just for couples that are struggling in their marriage. Now, certainly, marriage retreats may have some benefit and help for couples that are struggling in their marriage, but primarily, marriage retreats are designed for encouraging, for building up, for strengthening marriages. And one of the primary topics of any Christian marriage retreat that you'll ever go to is that they will spend much time talking about, teaching about, encouraging husbands and wives to be better communicators with themselves, with each other. Married couples who do not communicate well will eventually struggle in their marriage. 
It's not uncommon for husbands and wives to allow the busyness of this world and their lives to steal from them the most basic and powerful element of their relationship, and that is communication. Many couples who have allowed communication to falter find themselves strangers living in the same house, passing by one another as they do life, as they raise children, as they go about their everyday events. Dear friends, how many Christians are like this in their relationship with Jesus? You go to church somewhat regularly. You attend Sunday school when convenient. And and you pray when trouble finds its way to your doorstep. But for all practical purposes, you are totally disconnected from Jesus In an intimate, continual walk with him in prayer, Jesus, who died for your sins, who redeemed you and made you able to stand in the presence of the holiness of God. This passage is part of Paul's teaching on the armor of God. You may be familiar with that. And as he describes all these pieces of equipment that a Christian needs. He talks about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, sandals of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Out of all of those things, he gives the most attention to prayer. These three verses that end this section. And so from this, I want us to consider this morning what Paul teaches us about prayer. It's interesting, in these verses, four times he uses the word all giving this sense of this all-encompassing, this in-every-part sense of how prayer ought to be in our lives. Prayer is not something that is extracurricular activity for us. For Christians, prayer is our all in all. It is part of our eating and, and uh, excuse me, part of our breathing out and breathing in, part of our everyday existence. It flows interwoven with who we are if we are indeed believers in Jesus. It is our all in all. We are people of prayer who pray, who pray all, uh, all, uh, for all things and in all times. And so I want to divide our time in these three ways. Number one, we are to be people who pray all kinds of prayer. I want to talk about what it, the different types of prayer. We're probably most familiar with petitions, but I'm going to make the case there's other ways to pray as well. Number two, we are to pray always. Maybe out of all of this, that's the verse that trips most of us up. What does it mean to pray at all times? And and, in the the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul says, pray without ceasing. What does that mean, to to pray without ceasing? Are we to walk around with our heads bowed and our eyes closed all the time? If not, then what does it look like to pray always? And then lastly, what are we to pray for? And I think Paul makes the case that we are to pray for one another, that the kingdom might be advanced. We're going to talk about praying for all the saints. So let's begin with praying all kinds of prayer. Now here is what I want you to hear. When I say pray all kinds of prayer, hear me very carefully. We ought to be praying petitions, but praying all kinds of prayer means that we pray more than just petitions. Your prayer life ought to be full of things other than just, God, this is what I want. God, this is what I want you to give me. The most familiar prayer is making requests 
of prayer. This is probably the earliest and simplest type of prayer we learned as children praying before bedtime. Dear God, bless so-and-so. Dear God, give me this. Dear God, help me this. Those petitionary prayers. But, but notice that Paul opens his teaching on prayer in verse, in verse 18 with all prayer and petition. He uses two different words there for the types of prayer. Now, these two words certainly have similarities. Both of them mean the first word that's translated as prayer and the second word that's translated as petition. They both can mean making petition, but there is a reason why I think Paul distinguishes between the two. The first one means to speak to or to make requests of God, but, but it also can mean to pray, to speak to God, to be in prayer. This is more general sense of being in communication with God. It's you in a sense of talking with God. And of course, the second one, petition, you know what that means. It means to beg, to plead, uh, to ask with urgency, to presume with a presumed need. That's when we are asking God, pleading with God, help me, provide for me, and those sort of things. The distinction is that where one is narrowly defined as asking for something, that would be the petition, the first one, prayer, is more broad in the sense that it encompasses all types of prayer. And I think the reason Paul includes both of these words is not to be repetitive. I don't think he just wanted to add another word. But I think he wants to make a distinction that our praying should be petitions, but not just petitions. Now, to think about this in terms of our own relationships, the reality of it is, when you have friendships and close relationships with somebody, one of the things that that um, provides for you is the ability to ask for help. So if you know somebody, you are good friends with somebody who has a particular skill, has particular access, who has particular power or influence, and in your life that a need arises that that person can affect, if they're a good friend of yours, you don't hesitate. If they're a good friend of yours, you pick up the phone and say, hey, I've got a need. Can you help me? Because you know that your friend who's got access, power, or the ability, because they're your friend, is going to say, absolutely, be glad to help you. Be right over. But now imagine with me the only time you call that person is when you need something. You with me? You don't call them for five years and you pick up the phone, hey, I need something. Or every other day you call them and say, I need something, I need something. I, I got a little secret for you. You may call them a friend, but I'm not so sure they're going to call you a friend. And there may be a reason why your calls keep going to their voicemail. Because that's no relationship at all, is it? You understand that in the personal dynamic. If, you're, if your close, intimate relationships are only one-sided as far as the only thing you ever do is request, ask, plead for something, that's not a relationship. But if you have an intimate friend to whom you talk with all sorts of things, then it's certainly appropriate and right and good to ask for things when needs arise. You need to be making petitions of the Lord. But don't let that be the only thing that consumes your prayer life. In fact, I would suggest to you that you consider the acts of prayer. A-C-T-S, the acts of prayer. It's an acrostic that I think is helpful to remind us of the important parts of prayer. Here's what they are. Adoration or praise. C would stand for confession. 
T, thanksgiving, and then D, supplication, or that's a fancy word for petitions. What does it mean to adore or make adoration? It means simply to praise the Lord. Now, this is more than just ritual or rote words said before a meal. Adoration draws your attention to the power and the majesty and glory of God. You see, the thing about petition is that that's the only thing your prayer is, then that'll reduce your understanding of who God is to something little better than a genie in a bottle, something you do when you need something and you really don't expect anything to happen at all. But when you begin your prayer with adoration, you begin to focus your attention on the glory, the majesty, the, the, the greatness, the holiness of God. He was and is and is to come. He is the one who has all power and all knowledge and all wisdom. He is the one worthy of all praise, glory, and honor. He is the one in whom we will surround the throne in glory with nothing else to do but praise the name of God. He is the one whose light will outshine any need for sun or moon, but will give glory and light to heaven for glory of eternity unto eternity unto eternity. Dear friends, if you'll begin with adoring God, one of the things I think you'll discover is there's more things to adore God for than anything else. And you might find you don't get to the other things because you get so tied up in bringing adoration to the glory of God. Adoration reminds you who God is. Adoration sets the stage for everything else that follows. Number two, Confession. Now, if you're here today and you've not sinned in the last 24 hours and you don't struggle with sin at all, please raise your hand because you need to be where I am and I need to be where you are. The reality of it is all of us in this room struggle with sin. Somebody say amen. Therefore, your prayer ought not be devoid of confession. God is holy, and when you approach his presence, you're reminded of your sin. In a prayer life devoid of confession, dear friends, I believe is dead and worthless because it is devoid of actually standing in the presence of God. Did you hear me? If there's no confession in your prayer, then that's a testimony that you're not standing in the presence of God because if you're standing in the presence of God, you'll be on your knees in confession. How, how could you not? Confession for a Christian is not a once-and-done activity. Confession for a Christian is a continuous part of our relationship with Jesus, in part because we understand that, that sin hinders our relationship with God. Isaiah wrote, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. Neither is his ear so dull, so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. Dear friends, stand before the Lord in adoration, kneel before the Lord in confession, and then the T is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is simply recognition of the one who has provided. The Bible says that all good things come from the Lord. Now, friends, God has already been so gracious to us that if, that if we were to express thanksgiving commiserate with his grace, we would be giving thanksgiving from now until the end of eternity, which means we'd never stop. For me, this particularly is an area where the Lord has been teaching me lately. When Paul was writing to Timothy, 
He wrote to him a warning about those who would fall away from faith and falsely teach about forbidding marriage and restricting food. And he wrote these words to Timothy. He says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it, sancti- for, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. For me, God's been using that in my life to receive what he has provided, all things he has provided, some of them which I would wish he had not provided. Amen? If I'm being totally honest. But to receive them with thanksgiving. All good things come from the Lord. I'm going to tell you what, it's changed my attitude on a host of levels. As I begin to add into my prayer life a more intense thanksgiving for how God has provided for me. And then lastly, not by mistake, lastly comes supplication or petition. As I've already said, if this is all we prayed, our praying would be shallow indeed. But in relation to adoration, confession, and thanksgiving, it is very much part of a proper prayer life. Now listen, there's plenty of passages in Scripture you can go to where we see supplication or petitions made. Jesus teaches us in in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. That's a request made before God. In 1 John chapter 3, it says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. He's talking about petition or supplication, making requests before, the God, before, our, before our God. Yes, ask of God. But make sure that your asking of God comes in the context of praising the Lord, confessing your sin, thanking God for what he has provided. Then Paul says that we are to pray always. Look at what he says. Let's look back in the the passage. Again in verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Two things here. Number one, I think for a believer, Christian ought to be a natural, prayer ought to be a natural response. One of the phrases that Paul uses in verse 18, I think, has caused some, con- some confusion or maybe consternation to, to many new Christians trying to be faithful to the text. What does it mean to pray always? What, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul uses a, a similar phrase where he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. What does it mean to pray without stopping or without ceasing? I don't think Paul means that we are to constantly be in a formal sense of prayer, meaning that eyes closed, head bowed, hands together. If for nothing else, there's no testimony in Scripture that Jesus did this. There's no testimony in Scripture that Paul did this. And if you were to do that, you would be able to do nothing else. I think to pray at all times is to have a heart, listen to me carefully here, that is naturally drawn to the Lord in all things And at all times. One commentator wrote, he said, To pray at all times is to live in continual God consciousness, where everything we see and experience becomes a kind of prayer, lived in deep awareness of and surrender to our Heavenly Father. Communicating with God is a part, becomes a part of our mind and our heart. So whatever you're doing, 
whenever you're doing it and with whomever you're doing, your heart's natural response is to be before the Lord in prayer. A natural response is, is, is praying always. And then I think secondly there is a, a, a constant response. These two are related, maybe even two sides of the same coin. A natural, in other words, that it just flows out of who you are. And constant means that there's no segmented place in our life where we do pray and segmented place in our lives where we don't pray. Prayer must be something that is, prayer must not be something that is scheduled or perfunctory or segregated to certain places or restricted to certain times. In other words, there ought to be no place or time in your life where you say, This is not a time or place of prayer. Do you hear me? There ought to be no place or time in your life where you say, This place, this time is not a place for prayer. I believe prayer must be constant in your life when you're working, when you're playing, when you're driving, when you're walking, when you're running, when you're at home, when you're away from home. Constant prayer is not only for the super spiritual. Constant prayer is a must for every believer. One of my favorite writers that I read very often was writing on the subject, and he made a distinction between Praying and the gifts of the Spirit, that I thought was so insightful. This is what he wrote. It's a guy by the name of Boyce, and he wrote, wrote but, but notice this. He said, I noticed this as I worked over these important gifts of the Holy Spirit to the church. Prayer is not among them. Why is that? It is because prayer, is, is it because prayer is not important? No. It is because prayer is not a gift Gift is the wrong category in which to consider it. Prayer is a responsibility, an obligation. And this means that you and I are to pray always in all situations and with all kinds of prayer and requests, regardless of what our spiritual gifts or gifts may be. In other words, there's not, somebody, there's not some people that are gifted at prayers and some people who are not. His point is is that all of you, if you are a believer, filled with the Spirit of the living God, if you are saved today, you have been given the opportunity, the privilege of praying. And it ought to be a natural part of your life, and it ought to be a constant and consistent part of your life. Pray always. And then lastly, let's see who we pray for. So just following verse 18, Paul says in verse 19, And pray, well, just at the very end of verse 18, and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Pray for all the saints. Now, when when I say that, there's a couple of things that I think help us understand what that means. Number one, we pray for all the saints. We are to pray with a kingdom focus. With a kingdom focus. So the end of verse 18 and the whole of verses 19 and 20 are about who and what we are to pray for. And the focus of our prayer is not to be for things that we typically pray for. So Paul says he doesn't mention anything about praying for worldly advancement. He doesn't say, listen, dear brothers, you ought to pray that you, that you do well in your career. Is it bad to do well in your career? No. 
But that's not, the, that's not where Paul says our focus ought to be. He doesn't say we ought, to, we ought to pray for worldly advancement in our career or in our wealth or even in our education. He says he doesn't even talk about praying for personal well-being, safety, health, wealth, and advancement. And you say, well, that wasn't a concern. Yes, it was a concern. These were people who knew real persecution for their faith. Paul doesn't even mention here, you ought to pray for safety. You ought to pray that the, that the abusers don't come around. These things are not prohibited from us from praying for them. But here's the point. They're not the primary things we are to pray for. And can I just say a word of pastoral concern? If I were to guess, my guess would be those things are what take the primary focus of our prayer today. Personal advancement and personal well-being. For Paul, the primary focus is that our prayer should be focused on the kingdom. He asks specifically that for the, to pray that the preaching of the gospel would be bold and clear and that those who are called to preach would be obedient to proclaim what they are called to proclaim. I think in here you can understand that the hearing and receiving of the gospel would be, would be heard and received by the lost, that there would be an effectiveness to the kingdom work. Dear friends, so much of what we pray for will not last past this world. When I was 15 years old, every night before I went to bed, you know what I prayed for? It was not the missionaries in Africa. I wish it was. It was not that God would give me boldness to proclaim the gospel in the high school. I wish it was. Every night when I was 15 years old, I prayed, dear God, give me a car. Because as a 15-year-old boy, that was the, the pinnacle of what I just, I mean, it consumed my thoughts. Oh, I made some spiritual hay with it. Oh, I'll serve you, Lord. I'll take people to church in it. The nicer the car, the more people I'll bring. That kind of mess. But let me tell you something. If God had answered that prayer, given me a car, you know where that car would be today? In the junkyard. Because things of this world don't last. Not saying it was, I'm not saying it was sin to pray for that. There were better things to pray for. But I'm just saying, let us not let our, don't let our prayers be consumed with praying for temporary things that will not last. Pray for kingdom things. Pray for souls to be one for Jesus. Pray for saints to be faithful to the call of the gospel. Pray for the advancement of the kingdom. That the salvation of the lost would be saved, that the church would grow, that the faithfulness of preachers, of the effectiveness of missionaries, and the obedience of every saint. He says pray for all the saints. Now how would we pray for all the saints? There's millions and millions of people who love Jesus. Praise God for that. But as the Lord brings to mind people in this church serving faithfully, pray that God they would serve faithfully. Those who are given special tasks like preachers or missionaries or Sunday school teachers, pray they would be obedient in their calling. In fact, I would say not only should we pray for the, for, for the, in the sense of kingdom focus, but we ought, that our prayer ought to be directed toward the saints. So Paul says in the last part of verse 18 that we are to make, make petitions for all the saints. Now, obviously, we can't pray for every Christian that lives, but I think what Paul is directing our prayer attention to is to the work of the kingdom as it is made through the lives and testimonies of those who are called 
by the name of Jesus. And so here's some just things to pray for. We ought to pray for the obedience and effectiveness of leaders. We ought to pray for those who have special burdens. I, I heard this week of a brother, a fellow believer, who was in a very high position, who had a moral failure. And he talked about the stress of his, of his job and how that related to his moral failure. My heart broke. We ought to be praying for people that God has put in high positions that they would walk in faithfulness and obedience and be encouraged. We ought to pray for the faithfulness of our marriages. There are testimonies in this church of marriages that have struggled, and yet they have persevered in obedience, and they bear a good and beautiful witness to the testimony of the Lord. We ought to pray for the protection from the lies of Satan. We ought to pray for the faithfulness of churches. Dear friends, all around us are churches who are abandoning the truth of the gospel and chasing after the things of the world. And when they do, they are forfeiting the power of the gospel from their pulpits and their pews. We ought to pray that God would would make the perseverance of the church and the faithfulness of church, not just ours, not just Southern Baptists, but all who proclaim the name of Jesus. And he uses this word, Be alert and persevere. Verse verse 18, be on alert and with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Dear friends, if Satan is able to discourage a church from prayer, he has done a great work to destroy their effectiveness. Be alert and aware of the dangers. Persevere, carry on, even when it is difficult, uncelebrated, and seems ineffective. When U.S. military forces began operations to liberate Kuwait, the strategy that was implemented was dramatically different from what was used during the Vietnam War. You may remember there was a phrase, shock and awe, But that wasn't just blow up a bunch of things. And it really wasn't just a big flash in the pan. There was a specific strategy behind what the U.S. military was trying to do. The principle behind shock and awe was to achieve what military strategists call strategic paralysis of the enemy. The use of precision bombs allowed war planners to target and destroy specific assets that paralyzed and demoralized the enemy's ability to fight. One of the key elements in achieving strategic paralysis is to disrupt and to destroy command and control. And a necessary element to disrupt and destroy command and control is to is to destroy and to cut all lines of communication now in modern warfare that's done with precision bombs but you understand in warfare as far back as history goes the most effective thing you could do to render your enemy powerless is to cut communications Dear Christian, I believe that the most powerful gift you have, that's not hyperbole, I believe the most powerful gift you have is the privilege 
to pray and be heard by the God of all creation. Those who are not saved by the blood of Jesus do not have such a glorious privilege. I think that's what made what we did during Operation Meet the Neighbor so powerful. If you don't know what we were doing, we were going around, this is pre-pandemic days, but we were going around meeting all those folks within a one-mile radius. What we did was very simple. We knocked on the do- their door. We introduced ourselves. We said, well, listen, we're from Central Baptist Church. Are there things that we can pray for you about? And you would think having strangers show up on your doorstep and wanting to pray for you would be a turnoff. But week after week of doing that, we would meet back in the fellowship hall and over pizza we would talk about what happened. How people would pour out their hearts to us on their doorsteps and how we'd gather around them and pray for them. And you know what? That was a testimony to the power of what believers can do. We were able to go to the throne of heaven on their behalf. And even our neighbors who don't darken the door of a church When they had believers on their doorstep and an opportunity to have their concerns taken to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, they were willing to pour out their hearts and share with strangers on their porch that they might be prayed for. Your most powerful gift is the privilege to pray and be heard by the God of all creation. I also believe that Satan knows this and is constantly working to sever these lines of communication. As we said just last week, we're not not kept from praying by force or violence. We're kept from praying from busyness, distraction, worldliness. If your prayer life can be rendered powerless, your walk with the Lord will be equally rendered powerless. So here is my practical pastoral advice to you. Start right where you are. I love to read testimonies and biographies of Christians and who've gone before. And Sometimes I'll read about these guys who get up Uh, middle of the night and spend eight hours of prayer before they even start their work day and to be honest sometimes when I read that I think I don't think I could ever get there and I might never get there and if you're not careful you read those biographies and it can paralyze you thinking well that's I, I, I don't have that ability listen wherever you are whoever you are start right where you are begin today We joke around here, but we joke with intensity. You know the best time to start going to Sunday school? This coming Sunday, amen? And do you know when the best time it is to start praying? Right now. Pray for all occasions, all kinds of prayers at all times. Pray that you might walk in God's power and in God's faithfulness. Pray that the saints might be effective and empowered to do the gospel ministry. Start today. Start right where you are and pray.